0: Hi, I'm Frank Connolly, here with another edition of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's podcast on critical thinking in the digital age. And I'm here today with Larry Tai, award-winning journalist and author, the author of several biographies, including those of Edward Bernays, the father of public relations, Satchel Paige, the Hall of Fame pitcher and all-around personality, and most recently, the author of Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Now Larry, you've written books on many topics but uh, you've written in particular a number of biographies. How much research do you do online when you are researching a a person's entire life?
1: So the answer is that for, as an example, uh, the last book I did, a biography of Bobby Kennedy, I did between 400 and 450 interviews and they were on the one hand done with old fashioned techniques. They were either done face to face or they were done by telephone and on the other hand they would not have been possible without online technology, meaning that they were done with my recording it over the phone and in a digital recorder and then sending it immediately online to the transcribers who are going to be transcribing the things. All the interviews I do myself, but I could never write a book if I did things like transcribing interviews. And what that does, sending them online and using you know high-tech techniques, lets me uh, not worry that I'm going to lose those crazy little tapes that I did on the previous books. And so wherever I am in the country or in the world, in five minutes after I do my, an interview, it's out there in somebody's file somewhere or in Send Space ready to be transcribed. And um, the other thing is that every book, I'm working on an eighth book, and every book that I've done, and I started doing them 22 years ago, I think, Um, There has been a technological revolution that has made the process of research and of getting the book out there 10% to 20% easier. And so I'm glad to talk about lots of specifics in terms of online stuff, but I just want to put in a pitch that if it weren't for the online world, I'd be writing fewer books and everybody else would as well.
0: Okay, and what project are you working on now, Larry?
1: I'm writing a biography of a character that I thought I knew and realize I really don't. And it's uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy. And it turns out that there are lots of papers. This is a guy who, like Bobby Kennedy, has had 101 books written. And the reason I'm doing the 102nd is because there's an extraordinary trove of new material out there that gives us a very different look at who Joe McCarthy was. And there are things going on in our politics of today that maybe make us interested in who Joe McCarthy was and what lessons he offers to history. That sounds similar to
0: the experience of, of Jack Farrell, uh, the author of the, the new biography of Richard
1: Nixon. Now, were you a
0: colleague of Jack's at the Globe?
1: Uh, we were colleagues at the Globe. I did a blurb on the back of Jack's book. I just had breakfast with him in Washington a couple weeks ago, and he's a pal, and he's about to do a book talk at Fenway Park, so that's very exciting.
0: It does sound similar to, to Jack Farrell's experience. Because in the course of researching his biography of Nixon, he came across new material uh, about Nixon and, and his role during the 1968 campaign in perhaps sabotaging peace talks, the Vietnam peace
1: talks. So very similar, I hope, in the sense that he not only came out with new information, he came out with information showing that Nixon had done some things that might have been treasonous. And that information was substantial enough that three or four months before the book came out, Jack had front page stories in the New York Times touting the new information. And that is an author's dream, not only that they come out with new information, but that papers like the New York Times recognize that.
0: Well, I very much hope you have the same good fortune as Jack.
1: Yes, from your lips to somebody's ears somewhere, and that's the end.
0: You mentioned that you work uh, with uh, several research assistants. Now I assume these are younger people?
1: Uh, they are. They're college students, graduate students and I probably had in the course of any one of the books I was working on somewhere between a dozen and 20 in, in terms of the Kennedy book which I took longer to do and had more interviews and therefore more transcribers and other researchers. I probably had 25 to 50 in the course of the book working on something and they did everything from what you do with researchers is you never have them do anything that is an essential part of the substance of the book, because that's all your responsibility. And if there's plagiarism, if there's anything else, you want it to be your work and your mistake. And so you should never, lots of uh, biographers and other nonfiction writers have gotten in trouble by relying too much on researchers. On the other hand, you should never do anything yourself that a researcher could save you steps in doing. So that means walking into a library and making Xeroxes of the 2,000 articles you want. That means going and tracking down lots of things that I know are there and that it just would take me a day um, to go find, and they can do it more easily. So yes, researchers are essential, and yes, your controlling what they do is even more essential.
0: And these young people that you work with, uh, do you think that they are appropriately skeptical about the material they're finding online? Do you think that they're good, critical thinkers?
1: Well, so I would answer that in two ways. One is I would say if they aren't, they only last through one assignment. And the what I always do with a researcher is I post advertisements um, that you can do for free on student job boards at colleges around the country, so everywhere from BU and Harvard to Columbia University and whatever school is nearest to things like presidential libraries that I need to do work in, I use the student job boards and if they don't have those at the university I go to professors in departments that make sense in the history department or wherever and I say give me your smartest student and that smartest student if they want the job and people love the idea of jobs that can go on their resume and that they can get a paycheck for if they want the job they get one assignment to test out whether they do it right and if they don't show the kind of skepticism that you're talking about in terms of online sources and everything else or they don't deliver with the speed and the accuracy of typing or whatever else it is that one assignment we sort of split company at that point but that kind of skepticism is essential for anybody um, who's a citizen in today's world and is especially skeptical if they want to be a researcher or an author themselves.
0: Uh, How about yourself Larry? How computer savvy
1: are you? I am, so I would separate things. I am hugely impaired in terms of technology generally, and the, um, I have, when we get done with this interview, um, I have coming over somebody who's gonna make my Dragon software work and the voice recognition system and, and other things, I'm pathetically ignorant of how to make technology work, but once I figure out how technology can help me do something better as a researcher, I consider myself very savvy because I depend on it so much that if I wasn't savvy I'd never meet my deadlines and the it's left brain right brain and I never remember which is which but it's something about those that, yeah. the Dragon
0: software certainly comes in handy when you're having problems typing I can I have been through that myself
1: I've got um, some form of mild or they call it borderline rheumatoid arthritis in my wrist so if I were doing all the typing that I have to do to do a book I would either end up with no wrist or no book and Dragon for every book, I mentioned this is an eighth book, for every book, Dragon has gotten a little bit better, and it just it amazes me. Normally, I assume when people come up with a new version of any technology, you know, 13.1, that it's just a way of dressing it up a little and it doesn't really have any improvement. With this stuff, you can see the way it's better at recognizing. I've got unrecognizable and uninterpretable accent and way of speaking, and Dragon can even make it work for me, so it can work for anybody.
0: So as someone who goes through vast amounts of material and and research, do you find that you tend to be more skeptical about online material than offline material?
1: I am, and I think that that probably is a mistake. And it's a mistake not in terms of being skeptical of online material, it's a mistake in assuming that if something is in print form and it's a book that's been out there for a long time and it's sort of somehow held up, that that means it's right. And when you become an expert in an area, and I hopefully now am a little bit of an expert in Bobby Kennedy or Satchel Page and some of the things I've spent ungodly amounts of time on, and you look through all the books that have been written on those by big publishing houses, you become a skeptic about everything because you realize that either they're not well documented or they're just wrong on a lot of things. And it's easy to make some factual errors, but when I read somebody's book, And I see little errors. This is what they used to tell us in the newspaper business, that if you spell a name wrong and people know that you did that, they're not going to trust you on the bigger things. And that's true in everything. So I would suggest people ought to have skepticism about everything they look at ever. And we've got to trust some things at some point. But the luxury of writing a book is you really have the time to dig three levels deeper and to know that it's trustworthy by the time you use it. When you're doing a newspaper story on a daily deadline, doing fact-checking is near impossible on most things.
0: Now, do you think there's really more of a need for fact-checking these days?
1: More of a need for fact-checking these days and fewer editors at a newspaper. If you look at, I won't pick out any single newspaper, look at any newspaper in America and they're cutting back substantially on the editors who edit every story. The, The copy desk at newspapers is being decimated, in part because a lot of those people are going to digital and they're so worried about getting it online quickly that there are fewer people to do the kind of fact-checking that they did when I started out.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the research process. Uh, I I remember from my days as a journalist, I would do a lot of research myself, and and back in the Stone Age then, a lot of it involved uh, microfilm, which is a hard thing to explain to <laughs> a lot of people today, I think. but. I know that uh, I would go in looking for something, some specific fact, but very often I would find stuff in there that uh, wasn't necessarily what I was looking for, but it was as interesting, or even sometimes even more interesting than I would than what I was looking for in the first place. Online research is a little different because very often you know exactly what you're looking for; you're just trying to. You know, and you you have a URL and and you go straight to it. So you save time because you don't have to filter through all this context. But, you know, do you think that sometimes there's a trade-off because you're also losing that context? Do you think that your researchers sometimes find, you know, just what they were looking for but nothing else that might have been valuable to them?
1: Yes. So can I tell you two quick stories about the two aspects of what you said? In terms of going through microfilm, as somebody who, again, wasn't especially technologically savvy, setting up microfilm and looking through it, in my first book, which I wrote 20-some-odd years ago, a biography of a man named Edward Bernays, who was the so-called father of public relations, Sigmund Freud's nephew, who took his uncle's ideas on why people behave the way they did and used it to sell all of us more toothpaste or more presidents or more lots of things. Um, And when I was doing that, almost all of my research was at the Library of Congress, the world's best library, and lots of it was, was with microfilm. And it was a nightmare just setting up every reel of microfilm and the time that it took you. That, the value added of actually being there and going through the microfilm was not worth the hassle of doing it. That's one set of experiences. The other set of experiences is comparing the two libraries that I've used the most, which were the Library of Congress and maybe the best university library in the world, which is Harvard's Widener Library. At the Library of Congress, you had to put in a request for every book you wanted at a desk, and they'd have somebody go to the stacks and bring you back the book. And that was terrible, no value added in being there. At Harvard's Widener Library, it was OpenStax. And that meant you could go in and look for the book that you were trying to find and see the five books around it that you never knew I wasn't smart enough to know existed. And those five books, subject matter, were related. And I would often find things that were incredible gems. And so that's the old-fashioned. You There are some old-fashioned stories that we all tell nostalgically that we're a little bit sugarcoating going to Widener Library was not sugarcoating. The old-fashioned way really was better. And whatever time was spent or whatever time I now have a researcher go look for this book, or even more likely, the researcher doesn't have to go look for the book because Google or some other library system has it online. They're not going to find and I'm not going to find the books that were next to it. And when we know precisely what page to go through, to go to, because we can do a digital search of exactly the wording we're looking for, the name we're trying to find, it means we're also not spending the time looking at other pages around that. And it's just, there is a huge loss. And the question is whether that's worth it in terms of the time you're saving. If I'm spending that extra time going out and playing baseball or drinking beer, then it's a huge loss. If I'm spending that extra time reading more of the books that I know exist and plowing through things on my limited deadline, then it's maybe an equal trade.
0: Now Larry, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it. What would you say are the differences in the research challenges that are involved in daily journalism versus the research challenges involved in writing a book or a biography?
1: So the great news on journalism is, in the course of the two years I have to write the book that I'm working on now, figuring that I worked, let's say, 300 out of 365 days a year and that on an average day I wrote two stories. So my math suggests that's 1,200 stories versus one book. One is incredibly immediate and has to be superficial because you're just doing it in the course of half a day if you're writing two stories a day and there's only so much the smartest journalist in the world can figure out in terms of a topic and people that they can talk to and fact-checking that they can do given that kind of a deadline. On the other hand, in the course of 1,200 stories you're repeating the same story many times in terms of marginal updates on it and hopefully you're getting instantaneous feedback on everything you screwed up on because 20 people are giving angry comments, you know, online to what you've written. So you get a chance to correct it and play it out over time. And I'm not sure which for an average reader, whether they're being better serviced by a wonderfully researched in depth 500 page book that um, versus, you know, 1200 newspaper stories. And the fact is that to be a bestseller as an author If you sell 30,000 copies of a book on Bobby Kennedy, um, you're on the New York Times bestseller list. And if you sell 30,000 copies of a newspaper, you're a tiny, small-town newspaper. And I think that the—so lots of stories to a hugely bigger audience versus one in-depth thing. I don't know which is easier, which is— better serving somebody which is more likely to be accurate. I know that I had a blast doing the twelve hundred story version of things and now I would never go back to that and I because I love being able to go deeper and write books. But more power to the fifteen year old journalist who's out there banging their head against the wall doing two stories a day.
0: Okay, now let's let's get let's get down to the one of the big issues of the day. I mean as a former journalist, what's your take on fake news?
1: So can I answer that In two ways, Uh, because I think of two kinds of fake news or this whole controversy over fake news. I am shocked and dismayed by the idea that there are people out there, whether they're in Uzbekistan or wherever they are, creating stories that are deceiving people. I mean, they're telling lies. Fake news are, to a journalist, to an author, the scariest thing in the world is somebody who's writing something that's a lie that's being taken as factual because we spend our lives going out there, you spend your life going out there and trying to tell a story accurately and in a way that's going to be appealing and the idea that people are doing this as an industry turning out fake news I just I don't get it and it and it outrages and worries me um, the only thing that's equally worrisome is somebody be it the President of the United States or whoever it is labeling The carefully researched news that the New York Times and other media do every day, disparaging that by calling that fake news and equating that with people who are telling lies. Every journalist is going to get things wrong occasionally, and that's generally going to be corrected, ideally in their own media outlet. And equating those two things is just scary.
0: Uh, Now, Larry, think of yourself as a wise sage giving advice. What advice would you give to someone, let's say someone coming out of college now? Uh, who's interested in getting into journalism or in writing more generally? Uh, How would you advise them about how they should go about doing research uh, whether it's online or offline?
1: Yes, so what you do is you take the old school values. I spent 15 years teaching at a journalism school and the main course that I taught was press ethics and the it was the one course that every student was required to take on ethics and probably the only time most of them in their entire lives as journalists would ever talk about ethics and the old school values of how to go about researching things carefully and deeply and with many sources to make sure you're really getting it right are essential, and I would use new technologies. New technologies gives you give you enormous new opportunities to find information and enormous new opportunities to be deceived by people who are putting out bad information. And so if you take the old school values and the new school technology, you can do something really brilliant and fast with it.
0: Well, thank you very much, Larry. Uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, we've been here with uh, Larry Tai, uh, award-winning journalist and author most recently of. Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon, and be sure to be on the lookout for his next project, his biography of Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. And so that wraps it up for today. I want to thank you for joining us here on Dig Deeper, the Mind Edge Learning podcast on critical thinking in the digital age.